2: Your host is Jessica Piro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Piro.
0: Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me today. This is the Journey Stories of Crisis and Hope, and I am Jessica Pirro. Every week, my goal of the show is to highlight the work of crisis first responders and their efforts in helping those in need. In previous shows, we've discussed the role of law enforcement responding to calls around mental health and suicide, and we've also discussed the role of crisis center staff and the general community and how we need to play a role in helping to intervene when someone is suicidal. Our discussion today brings these conversations into one, with a person who's had a unique experience patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and faced with intervening with numerous individuals struggling and without hope this assignment took a patrol officer into a lifelong mission of helping to bring awareness to suicide prevention so before i introduce my guest, i want to remind you if during the show this discussion about suicide is impacting you or someone that you care about please reach out to the national suicide prevention lifeline at one eight hundred two seven three talk that's one eight hundred two seven three 8255. And also with the Lifeline, they offer a crisis chat. So if you're not comfortable picking up the phone and making that call, please log on to crisischat.org to be able to chat with a counselor. And also for my international listeners, there's the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and their website is IASP.info. Again, IASP.info, and if you click on resources on their homepage, it'll take you to the list of crisis centers so that you can connect with your local crisis center. So if during the show you have any questions for myself or my guest, please email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica@gmail.com. at gmail.com. So, I want to introduce you to my guest who's joining me today and tell you a little bit about his background. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer. During his 23 year career, he was responsible for patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. In his retirement, he is mapping a movement as he speaks publicly about his suicide prevention and crisis encounters with people on that bridge. He has dedicated his life to promoting mental health awareness across the globe through pivotal points, an organization he founded to promote crisis management, suicide prevention and leadership skills. As a mental health consumer, Briggs himself suffers from depression related to his Highway Patrol officer and work leader experiences and is a suicide survivor losing his grandfather to suicide. As an international presenter, Sergeant Briggs' story and lived experiences have been featured on TED Talks and numerous magazines, newspapers, radio shows, and podcasts across the world. He is the author author of The Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. So, Kevin, I want to welcome you so much for joining me today, and thank you again for taking the time to talk with our listeners. Well, thank you, um, so to- It's
3: a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. So just to get started, can you just um, talk with our listeners a little bit about what your job was like as a California Highway Patrol officer?
3: Sure. Uh, We are charged with patrolling not only the freeways, but uh, unincorporated areas. And we would work right directly with the sheriffs in the county. So generally, the sheriffs would handle the penal code and we would handle the vehicle code. And we also did other things, um, going on with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and we would look into container ships, so a whole variety of things.
0: And so when you were patrolling the the bridge, you kind of stepped into a, really another line of work in intervening with individuals in crisis. Uh, you talk a lot about, uh, in, in your various um, Uh, presentations about the lack of training when you started as a police officer and you know mental health and suicide calls are very different than the types of criminal responses or motor vehicle calls you were just describing so what are some tips you would share for other law enforcement uh, officials in what they should think about when approaching these types of calls because mental health and, and suicide calls are very different
3: right first of all I would say get some training Really, that's, it's so vital. But to approach these calls, it's, it's quite different. You know, I would say you have to go slower when you're approaching mm-hmm. these things, unless there's something life threatening. But speak slower and direct sentences. Take some time to get to know these individuals. Ask them about any medications they may be on. We need to find out first if they are suffering from a mental illness. But if they are, you know, it's, it's very tough. So I found that, that by going in with a lot of empathy, Taking your time, slowing things down, really tends to, to help the situation.
0: What were some of the types of trainings that you were able to pursue to help you in your work um, in working with individuals with mental illness? Was there any particular types of courses or trainings that you were able to find when you pursued that?
3: Yes, but it wasn't after uh, quite many years. Uh, working on the bridge until I was able to get some training. But I went through the CIT, Crisis Intervention Training, yes. which was quite helpful. And then way later on um, in my career, I was able, one of the very few, very lucky to go through the FBI Crisis Negotiation School, which was just wonderful. Uh, I think everybody should, should go through that as far as law enforcement.
0: Absolutely. We uh, few, uh, last month we actually did a show about the CIT training. That's um, something we're very proud of getting going here in our local community. So we know how valuable that training can be for law enforcement. So I'm glad to hear that was your same experience. Um, you know, you you definitely were exposed to a lot of. Challenging situations, maybe in very traumatic situations, on a regular basis, that I would assume had an impact on you. Um, you've shared openly that you live with uh, depression as a result of your service. When did you realize this trauma was impacting you, and and what do you do for your own self care?
3: You know, I realized this probably, oh, I'm going to say eight nine years ago. Um. And, it, and I was a little slow on the uptake, I think, on this one, but I just found myself going to work and being fine, functioning, at, I would say, 100%. But coming home, uh, I would just sit on the couch all day and not want to do anything, and it was very, very strange because I was an active person, and I wanted to go out and explore things and do things, and I really didn't realize it until I, I went to my general practitioner, and uh, he, I told him about what's going on, and he knows my history, and he had me take a, a test. Which was the PHQ-9 test, and I yeah. think I flunked it pretty good because uh, <laughs> he came back in the room and says, "Kevin, you have depression. How do you feel about this?" I go, well, "How do you think I feel about it?" You know, right? I don't like it, but that's that's when it really hit me.
0: And that's great that um, you know your primary care uh, physician really help to have that conversation with you. I think that's such a critical, they play such a critical role for people in identifying uh, mental health concerns. So that's, that's a great um, outcome of that conversation to understand what was going on for you. Um, you know, I I was sharing with you before we, we started the show that my, my husband's a police officer as well. So seeing kind of the, the type of culture that police have to uh, respond to um, and just the culture of the department in and of itself, uh, there's a lot of pieces to navigate. Um, and sometimes um, we don't necessarily see a progressive uh, thinking around self-care or expressing how you're feeling um, because it might be seen as a sign of weakness. So how do we work to change that? Because obviously it's really critical that um, everybody is caring for themselves, but for for law enforcement and and the situations you deal with every day, um, your care is so critical to be able to do that job as effectively as possible.
3: Right. I, I believe it comes with training, awareness, starting at the top with management, having them come out and, and tell us, you know, this is what's going on, this is what's available to you. In the Highway Patrol and a lot of agencies, we have what's called the EAP, Employee Assistance Program, and that's where you can talk with a counselor for free, and it's all confidential, and that helps so many individuals. But uh, I believe it really it starts with management, and they need to come down and explain things to us, and get that ball rolling and tell them it's, you know, it's not a weakness. It's really not. It's an illness. And we can work on these things because we want you to be happy. We want you to come in and be productive as an officer. But we also want you to be able to get to retirement and have a good retirement.
0: Right, right. Now, did you ever, you know, as you kind of identified your own, um, you know, experience with depression, Did you notice um, concerns with any of your colleagues and maybe reached out to them to try to get them help as well?
3: Oh, I absolutely did, yes. Um, And talking with them in confidence, really, pulling them aside and and telling them, hey, this is, or even after something that they've experienced, you know, talking to them, this is what you may experience, and if you do, these types of things are normal. If you want, here's, I would give them the EAP card, you know, for the 1-800 line. I'm like, hey, if you need to talk to me or somebody else, feel free. you can call me 24 hours a day or talk to them. Because it is. It's, you're going to see so many things as a first responder, stuff that we're really not supposed to see. So our right. brain has a hard time you know, handling this. Um, but there is things that we can do. There's, there's a lot of different things that folks can do to get back on the road and, and be functioning and, and have a great life.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's just, you know, having people that they can confide in and feel safe to do that um, is so important for first responders. Um, like you said, you're, you're, you're exposed to so many things that the, the, that is out of the norm, if you will, and, and you really have to understand how to manage that and how that impacts you as an individual. Um, did you ever have a situation in your department where you lost a colleague to suicide? And, and how did the department handle that?
3: We did, if I remember correctly, from about 2004 to about 2007. I think we lost um, 13 individuals to suicide, oh, wow. by all different means, and you know that is dramatic in any department.
0: Absolutely,
3: so our department took. Um, we we started a program, and it went out, and we have folks come out to each in the area each area office, and talk to every single person about these are some of the signs and symptoms and, and coping mechanisms and how we can work around these things.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing to have um, that many people um, in that period of time within your own department. So it's great that um, they took the initiative to have that conversation to, to bring that information and education. Um, so... You know, I think one of the things um, that's interesting with your experience is just the path that your career has taken you um, after um, really patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge and kind of the experience around intervening uh, with individuals who um, were, are suicidal. So I'm sure when you began your career, you didn't anticipate having a mission like you have today around suicide prevention. So what made you decide on this path at this point in your career?
3: You know, I had no idea what happened on the Golden Gate Bridge uh, even when I started working on it. You know, we lose 25 to 60 folks a year to suicide on that bridge. And I really liked working down there because uh, to meet all the people from all around the world and it was just a really neat place to work. Um I had no training and and that was a very much an injustice to me and to those folks who were contemplating suicide. So I started kind of Training myself and asking the senior officers, what did they do? What worked? What didn't work? So it wasn't until later in my career that I did get some training. But, um, you know, I thought this is a, a great idea. I think I can, might be able to touch more folks, affect more folks once I retired in starting this business and getting out there and, and telling folks it's okay to talk about what's going on in your life. It's not your fault. You know, we we these things. This is an illness, and we can work on this
0: right right and it's providing people with um with hope uh, and and that's i know a theme throughout all of your work is is kind of re establishing hope for individuals who are really struggling at that moment um, i know you've shared stories with your different talks um about some successes as well as some losses on that bridge um and how, how are you i mean we've been talking a little bit about self care so when you're talking and talking about this over and over again, you know, how is your supports now? Because you're really reliving those experiences every time you present this information. Do you have, I'm assuming you have a great support system for you to be able to do this work?
3: Well, I do. And and everywhere I get to travel is a big support network because people want to talk after I speak. Um, people want to come up and talk to me and tell me their story and we can laugh and cry together and it's a huge coping mechanism for that. So now I have friends virtually when I first started doing this, I mean, I got friends in Africa and all these different places. So it's a, a mutual understanding, a mutual friendship, but the one-on-one I keep in, in contact with many, many people and I have a phenomenal assistant named Jamie Burton who is the CEO of a big mental health group and she's based in Kentucky. Um, and she just offered me so much advice and i have a counselor and a psychiatrist which i believe are very very important not just your gp but to get to get specialized as you would in it and if anything was wrong with you so all of these folks you know really helped me out
0: and that's really and it's it's such a great message to share and i you know just with individuals in general but for our law enforcement listeners who you know maybe struggling or you know just really um maybe You know, concern that if they reach out, that it's a sign of weakness instead of a sign of strength. I think it's just that message and hearing from someone who's lived that experience and walked in those shoes, if you will. um, I think your message really resonates with with them and then just the general community as well, um, because it really takes a team to do suicide prevention, and you're really representing one of many roles of a multidisciplinary effort um, of addressing suicide intervention and. prevention. Um, you know, is there any other, um, things you'd like to share with your, our listeners? We just have a few minutes till we break, but just, um, other recommendations for law enforcement officials. Um, we talked about training, we talked about support. Um, is there anything else that you give as tips for, uh, law enforcement in, re- in dealing with suicide and suicide prevention?
3: Sure. I would say look at the organizations that are out there now, you know, NAMI and AFSP, and there's uh, Mental Health First Aid and all sorts of different organizations. Plus, please have some officers go to the negotiation seminars that are all around the United States, which I didn't even know about until after I retired for the most part. But these are wonderful things like I would get to come up and speak for an hour or so, but then I get to sit in the audience and listen to these wonderful people all sorts of clues and hints, and and how they handle different situations. So it's just a phenomenal experience. These these Great. negotiation seminars.
0: Well, and there are so many resources, like you said. So um, we have so much to talk about. We are heading into break right now. So stay uh, with us. You're listening to the Journey Stories of Crisis and Hope.
2: life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: much of the time the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is you can take back control of your own health starting with billionaire health care this program is hosted by ashley black Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known. Until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
2: Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Karala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation and Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the c Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to The Journey. Here again is Jessica Piro.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Um, my guest today is Kevin Briggs, who's a national speaker and author of The Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. Um, so, Kevin, um, now that you're retired, I know you touched a little bit about this in the first segment, but can you can you share a little bit about your work now that you're retired from the California Highway Patrol?
3: Sure. I started an organization called Pivotal Points, and what I do now is travel around um, everywhere, I mean, Mexico and, and New Zealand, Australia, just all sorts of different places, talking to folks on how we can better understand each other, how to talk to someone who may be in crisis, and really get this conversation going about mental illness and showing people, you know, a lot of people think it, that, like you said, it is a weakness and it's all in your mind and these different things. But to show them this is really, it is an illness and how it affects folks, but how the majority of it is treatable and how we can continue to have a, a wonderful life, but just to get that message out there, you know, to break this stigma.
0: Absolutely. So part of your path led you to write a book. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the reason you decided to write the book?
3: Sure. Um, basically off of my experiences, lived experiences, and those working on that bridge, um, you know, we lose over 42,000 people a year just in the United States to suicide. So when I retired, I thought, how can I keep people from getting to this point, to getting to the point when they have a gun to their head or, or at the top of this bridge? That's my main focus now, is getting to folks long before they get to this, like a stage four cancer. So hmm. I wanted to also provide folks with some tools they could use, how do we approach someone who we think may be in crisis? Maybe they're not, but we need to find out. How do we have that courageous conversation? It's very, very tough to start that and to do that. But if we don't, that regret, you know, could that could really, uh that could last forever for what you did. If you just take some time, see the signs, see some symptoms, take some time and talk to someone. Just see what's going on with them. And then have some... Information with you in case they are having a very difficult time. What can we do about it? Where can they go? Who can they see? So, this is what I really am focusing on now.
0: So, can you talk a little bit about your book, "The The Guardian of the Golden Gate"? Like, what what is it? What are the stories that you're sharing as part of that book?
3: Sure, Uh, I share my own life experiences. Uh, I've had cancer. Uh, multiple surgeries, I've had mm-hmm. traumatic brain injuries with concussions and things. Um, my own boy, who is 15 now, was suicidal, and what we call a, a cutter, that non-suicidal self-injury,
1: mm-hmm.
3: how this mm-hmm. came to be as first responders, we are so good at at helping other people. You know, we miss things that's going on with our own life, and sometimes we miss things going on with our family because we want to be at work, we want to help people all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's also Uh, Stories in there and events that occurred, of course, on the bridge and off the bridge, some good, where they they turned out fantastic, others that they they turned out, you know, not so well. And what about the families that are left over? How are they doing? How are they coping? And then there's a um, some other guidelines that I have, like I said, for talking to folks and also for self-care. I really wanted to get into that, how we can take care of ourselves.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, in just your own experience, the, the traumas you've experienced as an individual, it just, you know, we we talk a lot about, um, you know, when people are struggling, understanding their history, understanding what has happened to them, um, to really guide our approach in working with them. So it's interesting that, you know, your, your story of even your own struggles really shows firsthand um, that there can be success, um, even when you're struggling with a mental health illness or or have had some challenging experiences, so you've, you're, you're showing that hope uh, in, in, in yourself and um, the work that you've done in your own personal personal experiences, which is wonderful. Um, in your book, you talk about your release model. Can you describe what that is?
3: Sure. This is a model I developed to give folks who want to, want to contact someone, so to speak, to help them in, in doing that. You know, this is, like I said, a very courageous conversation to walk up to someone and say, hey, I've noticed some things about you. Can we go sit somewhere and, and talk for a while? So how do we start that? How do we get to that? What are we looking for? But I also wanted to give that individual some guidelines and some information to do this so that person that they're talking to doesn't feel humiliated and they don't feel disrespected and they can open up. And we can find really what's going on with that individual.
0: And, I, you know, I think the point about this being such a courageous conversation is, is such a, a critical one because um, it does take a lot to just ask somebody, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? But what a path you can change if you do ask that question. So uh, the tips that you're sharing are, are really, really critical for, for everyone to be aware of. Um, you also talk in your book about your quality of life model. Can you sh- can you talk a little bit about what that is?
3: Sure, that's for I developed it really for me and and what I do and and so I can have a quality of life. Um, the quality of life triad it starts as a support system. Um, I said that's a triangle, so you have your support system, and then professional care. And then self-care on the very top. And I put that self-care on the very top because I need to recognize, if at all possible, what's going on with me. You know, we all have bad mental health days. But if that turns into a couple of weeks or so, in my opinion, you, know, you need to get some help. It shouldn't go on that long a time. And that goes right down into professional care. And when I'm talking about professional care, it's not just psychologist, psychiatrist, your GP. But anybody, in the profession that can help you—a life coach, a yoga instructor, a meditation instructor—anybody along those lines. And of course, right next to that is your support system, which is absolutely critical: friends, family, anybody that's there that can support you in what you do. So these three things: the self-care, professional care, and support—make up the quality of life.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. So you, you talk um, in the work that you do, you do a discussion around crisis management, and you discuss that it's important to build solid skill sets and strategies for dealing with various types of crises when they may occur. So what are things people should think about to help build that skill set?
3: Really, it starts with having plans for things that may come up. It depends on what job, of course, you're in. But... If we're talking about my job, if we're getting new officers in, which we do frequently, then we're going to train them, hopefully train them in CIT, this crisis intervention train, before they get out there on the road or while they're in the FTO um, process, field training officer process. We need to jump ahead of these things and be ahead of that before we let these folks go out there and do that. I know in Australia, they have what's called uh, mates in construction And I went there and before these folks are allowed to go on to the work sites, they talk to them about suicide and mental illness and these things because they have such a high rate because they have such a a high turnover of folks going in and out of that industry and the jobs, you know, they start in and then three months later they're done or so. So these folks are suffering because they don't know where their next income is coming from. Mm
2: -hmm. But this
3: is really, really neat for their industry to come in and And do that for these folks before they even go out onto the work site, so things like this to really get out there and show these folks this is what you may experience, this is what's going on, there is help there are, there are answers for this, and you're not alone is absolutely huge
0: absolutely that's really interesting to have the construction um, business really take that initiative that's that's pretty amazing because of the different other risk factors that that impact them because of not having a consistent income and things like that. That's really pretty progressive for them to be thinking uh, and taking that approach with them. Um, We actually have a couple questions that um, came in from, from a couple of our listeners. So I want to read those to you and um, we can have a discussion about them. Um, so, um, you know, in Buffalo, New York, we're very close to Canada here. So we're close to Niagara Falls, um, which unfortunately is attractive to people contemplating suicide. Um, if you were going to map out a strategy for a community for responding to and preventing suicide, what would that look like?
3: You no, know, this would look at First off, putting signs and phones up there around uh, Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. talking about you know if, if you are feeling sad, if things are going on, here's a, here are numbers to call. If you pick up that phone, it goes right to someone there that can respond out there. I know on our bridge here, there's phones out there, emergency phones, and when that individual, whoever it may be, picks it up, it goes right to the bridge. Who they respond to officers and we respond to officers. So it doesn't go to a counselor. We want to get folks out there right then immediately. But also, like I said, educating people from the very start. Because who knows, we may get folks from California flying all the way out there. I know we've had folks from all over the world fly to the bridge. So it's, it's all about education and showing folks this is not a weakness. It's not something to be embarrassed about. But we also need to take these measures at these places where there may be this contagion, so to speak, to have them something for them to look at, something for them to, oh, here here's a number I can call. And we do get that now and again. Folks who may be suicidal pick up that phone and go, you know what, I'm, I'm not feeling right. Can someone come out and see me?
0: Right. Absolutely. So it's really making sure that we're reinforcing the message of help and hope. Um, in these various places that might be, uh, like you have mentioned, an attractive place for people to go um, that are contemplating suicide, so trying to kind of change that thinking um, in that moment with those messages, those signs um, and the access to the phones, like you said, which is is great. Um, The other question that came in is, is how can we create a community that understands the effect that trauma has on officers? And provides the leadership necessary to care for the officers before there's a bad outcome.
3: As far as the officer was, like I said, it it needs to start with the management. They need to recognize what is going on, and in doing that, develop policies to maybe even there's folks out there now who see a counselor every single year, just as a mental health checkup. Not that anything's wrong but just for a mental health checkup and they can go throughout the years and see how they've progressed or is something going on. The counselors can see this. Hey, you know, I've noticed these changes in you over the years. So it's not anything bad. They think, Oh, they're forcing me to go see this counselor. No, but I, I believe in this. I think it would work well. Every officer go see a counselor every year, just as a mental health checkup. I think that would do wonders.
0: Absolutely. And like we've talked about, I mean, officers are exposed to so many different things that the the, if you will, normal, I'm doing it in quotes, what the normal person wouldn't be. And so it only makes sense that there's an understanding that that might have a, a big impact on their personal views and feelings and, and really needing to have that check-in, like you said. I think that's a, that's a great recommendation. Um, I have another, we a lot of questions, which is awesome. Um, I have another question that just came in. It says, um, I saw uh, Kevin on TED Talk. And I was very moved by his presentation, and I look forward to reading his book. Can you tell us about some of the people you have told um, their, you have told about their stories after seeing the TED Talk or reading the book? So it says, "Can you tell us about some of the people who have told you their stories I'm sorry, who have told you their stories after seeing that talk or reading the book?
3: Sure. I'm going to open up a drawer here and um, one lady I spoke with back East or I spoke with a about a a group of 2,000 folks and after I was done this one woman waited quite a while to speak with me there was other individuals and when she it was her turn to come up she goes I'm gonna need some time for you and I said absolutely Um, her, her name was sweet mrs. sweet and her son had lost his life to suicide in 2003 in the army in, the, in a in the war zone. And she had been wearing one of these kind of a, a metal bracelets that folks wear in remembrance of other people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: She took this off of her wrist that she'd been wearing ever since 2003 and gave this to me.
2: Oh, and wow. it just,
3: it just breaks your heart. She had been wearing this and I'm holding it in front of me now looking at this. And, uh, he was from Bismarck, North Dakota. So, you know, the impact that we have when we can get together and talk about our different stories and these things, it brings out so many emotions. I will always have this with me. Um, you know, it's it's really plays on your heart, these different things. And it just occurs all over the world, these, these sad stories. But it also unites us, all, the, all of us, just to get together, to talk about this, so we can prevent more of this from happening.
0: Absolutely. And I know um, in the first segment you shared a couple resources like NAMI and AFSP, which are great um, organizations that also help to support um, not only individuals who are looking to help prevent suicides, but also for those that survivor group, those that have survived suicides, um, and bringing that unity together um, to help one another um, after that loss. And so those are some other great um, resources people can check out. Um, Um, is NAMI and AFSP, um, and the work that they do um, is just phenomenal, not only for the individuals, but also for providers, and if it's law enforcement, I know for crisis centers like ours here in Buffalo, we we work very closely with um, our local NAMI chapter in our AFSP chapter so we really encourage people to reach out for help and I think that's kind of your message Kevin too is that is is reaching out for help it's it's there um, but also for us to ask the question when we have concerns for others
3: no exactly that's my point point. and you know how do we ask that question uh, and I one individual who was talking to my boy he asked it and he's a professional he asked it in this manner or he told him in this manner well, you're not going to commit suicide, are you? Or you're not suicidal, are you? That's a horrible way of asking that question. If Absolutely. you went on, and I'm a big fan of, of no barriers, if you can imagine that even on the bridge. But if you're talking to someone, come out from behind that desk or from behind that table and sit with them and develop a plan and tell them how much you care about them and so they don't feel like they're in a corner by themselves. But in asking that question, have you been having thoughts of killing yourself? Let them answer. Let them talk to you. Don't judge or argue. And really, let them talk. As long as they want to talk is fantastic. Let them get out all their emotions and feelings.
0: Absolutely. And in listening to them, I think that's like you said, you can ask the question, but then you have to be there to be present with them uh, to listen to what they are saying so that you can really hear uh, where they're at and also what intervention might be needed at that point um, to really have an impact um, on changing their path um, in their life at that moment. Um, So we're going to be heading to break um, just briefly here, but I just want to remind our listeners that um, if you are having thoughts of suicide or you need Um, To reach out and maybe help somebody that you love, uh, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And also the Lifeline has a crisis chat. And you can go on to uh, the website, uh, crisischat.org, and you'd be able to chat with a counselor if you feel more comfortable uh, doing that. And then for international listeners, I want to make sure you have a resource as well. And there's the International Association for Suicide Prevention. And that website is uh, www.iasp.org. Dot info again www.iasp.info and when you go to that website you find um, on the home page you click on resources and then that'll take you to the crisis centers and you'd be able to find uh, the crisis center um, in your in your country and in your community that you can reach out to to get help. Uh, this is definitely an issue that um, impacts uh, the world as a whole um, and I know uh, locally. Um, Um, as well as just nationally within the United States, we have seen um, rates of suicide increase. So this conversation is something that we have to keep having, that we have to keep reinforcing. um, And we also have to provide that path for people to um, reach out, but also for us to provide that courageous conversation like Kevin's been talking about um, and really providing a comfort area for people to get that help that they need um, to continue their living um, and not make that decision to die Um, so you know we have so much more to talk about so please stay with us you're listening to the journey stories of crisis and hope
2: opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: we are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational Healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
2: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to America at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O. VoiceAmerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Um, My guest today is Kevin Briggs. um, And as we discuss this issue, I want to make sure... that awareness and education is provided. And we've been talking about some different pieces of that in our couple segments so far. Um, So I want to have Kevin, um, maybe you could share, what are some signs that you look for? So when you're working with individuals, um, what are the signs that you look for in someone who may be contemplating suicide?
3: Um, You know, what I would be looking for, changes in appearance. Um, giving away their belongings, you know, life changes are, are huge, loss of income, loss of a loved one, a divorce, a drug or alcohol abuse, folks that are missing work. Um, a big one is really talking about or, or writing about suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is sleeping more. You know, a lot of times these folks are in so much pain that they take alcohol or drugs or they sleep a lot more because when they're doing that, then they're not in the pain, they're not suffering that they would be and as far as kids you know absenteeism in school not or missing school uh, declining grades um, cutting themselves on purpose that does a number of things it releases endorphins to mask the pain that they're in sometimes they can't communicate what they want to properly and they're very aggravated and of course victims of bullying and those um, that were let, molested as as children so all these different things
0: yeah, or definitely signs, uh, risk. there's the risk factors you mentioned, and then it's just the warning signs on the different types of behavior, um, and, you know, what we've talked about, especially for teens, I know you shared your, your own son's experience, but, you know, I think with, with children and teenagers, um, you know, it, it really is a watching to see if that behavior becomes a consistent behavior. Like you were mentioning earlier, you kind of have a bad mental health day, but if it's something that lasts for a couple of weeks or is ongoing, then that's something really to check in on and make sure that you're kind of asking, you know, what's been going on? You seem to be different. Do you seem like you're having a hard time? Um, you know, those are those are those signs that, that people are, are showing um, and how important it is to, to ask, you know, how people are doing um, to really intervene and, and make an impact on their their life. Um, what's one thing you would describe that a person in crisis needs to make a difference?
3: You know, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is hope. Can you imagine if you had no hope?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We all have hope for different things. I hope, you know, that you would, for us, I mean, winning the lottery or, or hoping that your kids are always healthy, hoping that we stay healthy and we go to a ripe old age. But without hope, what else is there? And that's, that's the huge thing that these folks are missing, hope for the future.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what about um, in your experiences with the individuals you worked with? Did you ever hear from them uh, the feeling of being like a burden on others? Yes. Is, you know, they have, can you talk a little bit about yeah, well, what actually, you saw when the, you saw that?
3: Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the top three that I would see when folks are up on that bridge. They feel as if they're a burden to their family, even though they probably did not talk about that with them. Um, most of them, if they were prescribed a medication for a mental illness, they are off of that medication. You know, these things, um, there's some some commonalities to folks up there quite a bit.
0: And, you know, I I feel that... um like you said, it, they might feel that burden, but they might not have talked about that. So it's really what they think, and that to and if they don't have that conversation with their loved one to hear, no, you know, we care about you, we love you, we need you here. Um, you know, they they think that that answer is that they they are a burden, which we know um, is not the case. But it's hard when you're you're having those those thoughts to think differently. Um, but it is critical to to have those discussions. Um, you know, I know we touched on this a little bit. Um, you know, many people think that mental illness can be seen as a weakness. So, can you just comment to that? I mean, as an individual who, um, you know, lives with a mental illness and has worked with individuals with mental illness, can you talk about that? Really, it's a that viewpoint that's that's wrong when it comes to mental illness—that it's a weakness.
3: Absolutely, and I'll just take my own case for example. Uh, I was in the army in the airborne infantry. And I got out of that. Um, I had cancer and, and retired out of the Army. And then I worked in corrections. I worked at San Quentin State Prison for a while. And then I went into the California Highway Patrol. Um, I was big into bodybuilding prior to having some heart episodes. I also had three heart surgeries. But, you know, I was five um 215 pounds or so big into bodybuilding. And how could a mental illness hit me? But it did. And I was this big, strong guy with these macho jobs, But it hit me, and it hit me hard, and it took me quite a while to realize what was going on. So it can affect anybody. It doesn't matter how big you are, how much money you make, where you live, how old you are. This mental illness, it's not a joke. It's not a weakness. You know, It's there, but there is a lot of help for it also. But we need to recognize what is going on with us, and if we see it in somebody else, being able to talk to them. You know, not all folks are going to be suicidal, of course. But let's talk to them. Maybe they're suffering from depression, or maybe it's just a bad time in their life. But that open communication and having a a support group are just critical.
0: You know, uh, Kevin. Locally here, we have a suicide um, prevention coalition, and we've done a campaign that we call "Tough Enough to Talk." And we have some of our. We had one of our Buffalo Bills alumni kind of be the spokesperson and for that so that the message was that um that talking is is ta- it's a good thing it's strength it's it's power um, and so it's really getting that message out to to everybody, um, you know, including men. I mean, I think for men, I mean, we we consistently see that our uh, rates of suicide among our middle-aged men um, are pretty consistent. Um, And just like you said, that even though physically you might be, you know, tough and strong, um, you know, mental illness impacts everybody. And so that message of of strength and hope um, and just to know that people are there um, to talk to, um, regardless um, of who you are, is is such a message that we all want to make sure people take away um, today from our conversation. But that uh, campaign we did really kind of opened some eyes and, and had a bit of an impact uh, locally. So, it uh, kind of is consistent with what you're you're saying. Um, so you no, you shared. I, I love that. Yeah. Tough enough to talk. I love, you know, it was a great, it was a great campaign and it continues to, to really resonate with the community. So um, now you've shared your diagnosis of depression. So can you talk how your diagnosis has affected you?
3: Sure. it affects me really every day. And it, and it still does. Um, I still, I go to a counselor. I see a psychiatrist. We're still working, you know, many people don't need medication I do and we're still working on that medication And it's been years now to try to get this settled down and and things that go on but what it did for me was if I did not have to really have to do anything I, ha- I had to go to work you have to make a living and I was able to do that and function at 100% but when I didn't um, I would describe it as my body felt like it was lead. it was difficult to get up it was difficult to raise my arms and it seems very very strange but that's how it was described to me once. And you know what? That's what I can say. I could, I could literally sit on a couch for a week and watch TV. So, you know, and that's not right. We're not supposed to be like this. Right. It took me quite a while to, to kind of figure this out. But that's what it was like for me.
0: Now, I know you had shared that you had lost your grandfather to suicide. How, how old were you when that happened?
3: I wasn't even born yet. My father, I believe, was, was okay. very, very young. I think he was just three or so. But what that did was robbed me from ever getting to know him.
0: Mm-hmm. On the impact so that had.
3: Mental illness in a family, and, and, you know, that may make the rest of us in the family more susceptible to mental illness. Right,
0: right. On the impact that had on your father, too you know, growing up without his dad and and trying to understand what that that all meant at such a young age. Um, It does have an impact, like you said. So in your opinion, what needs to be done as a society to help us reduce the number of suicides? What are some other things that you think we should be doing?
3: You know, I think it starts in the schools. We should be talking about it in the schools. Um, I was asked by some parents from the local school where my boys go to go and talk about mental illness and and recognizing signs and symptoms and working around this and what we can do. So I went to the principal and they said, "No, nah, we don't want to bring up the word suicide or mental illness mm-hmm. in school." Well, that's absolutely wrong. Because this is the thing these are the things that we want to do that we do want to talk about. Kids are experiencing this in school at a very young age, being bullied and right. these different things. So we need to start Educating our kids and it goes right into educating as we grow up into adults. And there are things now in colleges. There's a, a group called Active Minds and it's all around the United States here. And they put together folks who actively talk to, to people in the, in the colleges about mental illness. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to get educated out there, but that's the biggest thing with me is, is education and coming into this with an open mind.
0: Absolutely, um, so we have a few minutes till uh, till the show actually ends, and it 's just been such an amazing discussion with you today, but i'd like to kind of finish up with some you know thoughts of how do you instill hope for those that are hopeless? What are some of the things that you do to re- reestablish that hope for people?
3: You know, I just want to be there for them and if they talk about, you know, you've never had cancer, you've never had a mental illness, depression, or something, to tell them there's a lot of folks who have been where you're at right now, but they went and they sought help and they were able to get some help. Now, in my view, when I'm, when I'm working and they're over the rail, you know, it takes a lot of courage for them to come back over that rail. I never promised them anything. I can't tell them that they're going to get better, but at least they're there for another day, another chance at getting better. And that's the big thing with this is, Getting to folks who may be able to help them, there's a lot of opportunities out there. We just have to find the right one that fits that individual.
0: Absolutely. So Kevin, can you share um, your website and maybe some of your social media uh, contacts if people are interested in following you or, or learning more about what you're working on?
3: Sure. If they just go on to its pivotal points, so if they went um, Www pivotal hyphen points dot-com and there's all sorts of information out there and also the book is a uh, guardian of the Golden Gate protecting the line between hope and despair there's a lot of personal stories and a lot of stories um, survivor and otherwise in this book and that's available at Amazon and, and bookstores all around so please um, look at that website there's information on there on how to how we can help each other and make it through this you know there there is hope and there is help
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to share again, I mean, it's such a a critical discussion around how to be a part of preventing suicide in our communities. And it's so important that people know where to reach out for help. So I just want to share, again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. And for our international listeners, please check out www.iasp.info. And on the homepage, if you go to resources, you'll be able to find um, the crisis centers in your countries and communities. So, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience um, with our listeners today. I I really appreciate it. And I want to just remind our listeners to join me every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. So thank you again for joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please do your part this week to provide hope to others.
2: tuning into the journey stories of crisis and hope please join your host jessica Piro for another edition of the program next tuesday at 8 a.m pacific time and 11 a.m eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel we'll see you here next week